Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. Today is Monday, December 13th, 2021. This is the Defender Bible Study Podcast. My name is Chris Johnson. I serve as the National Director of Church Partnerships at Lifeline, and today we'll be continuing our study through the book of Romans by looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. If you have a Bible nearby you today, take it and turn to Romans chapter number 12. Romans chapter number 12. We're going to continue our study and look here uh, as we're traveling through the book of Romans. Uh, as was mentioned last week, we are transit. We have transitioned now. The first 11 chapters of Romans, very um, theologically strong, helping us understand salvation, the sovereignty of God, these deep theological truths. And as Paul does in so many of his writings, he oftentimes spends the first half of a book kind of dealing with those theological issues and then turns to a much more practical nature in the second half of the book. And ultimately, it's, it's, it's living out those things that we have learned, those things that we understand about God and his nature and his word and his and His working, uh, then applying these things to our life. And that is exactly what Romans 12 is all about. I love this chapter. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's so practical and uh, just so full of, of guides for us, helping us to know how to live out our faith. And, and really, I think, I think Romans 12 is really how to live in a way that we get to experience God's best. You know, God wants us to experience his best. He wants uh, us to know freedom and fullness in the Christian life and liberty and all these different things. And I think Romans 12 gives us a good indication of how to live out that life and how to ultimately experience uh, God's best for us. We saw in, 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 the, in this chapter, he's dealing a lot with relationships and how we relate to different things. First of all, in verse one, how we relate to God. And that's a relationship of surrender that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. And it's our, it's our reasonable act of worship. It just makes sense to do that when we see and understand all God has done for us. How can we not surrender to him and how can we not trust him? And so our relationship to God is one of surrender. In verse number two, he talks about our relationship with the world, right? And, and it's a, it's a relationship of, of, of coming apart and separating and don't allow yourself to be squeezed into the mold of the world. Don't uh, don't be conformed to the image of the world, but instead be transformed, be changed. Metam- it's that word metamorphosis from the inside out. Allow the word of God and the spirit of God to change our thinking, to change our minds. And so that we're not squeezed into the mold and the thinking of the world, but instead we're thinking from a biblical, spiritual perspective. And so our relationship with God, our relationship with the world, um, then in, in verses three down through verse eight, we see our relationship with ourself and how to have that proper perspective of who we are and seeing ourselves correctly, not to think too highly, but also not too lowly, recognizing the grace of God at work in our lives and how he has <clears throat> gifted us and given us those spiritual gifts to be used in the body of Christ. And, and so just recognizing God's work in us and the fact that God saved us for a purpose and he has a plan for our lives. So uh, making sure that we're understanding that and, and walking in a proper perspective of who we are in Christ. Then we're going to move in today to the next section. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13 first and then 14 through the end of the chapter. But in 9 through 13, I think he is he is showing us how to live in relationship with other believers, how to live in relationship with the body of Christ. And 
the words that come to mind when I read these verses is, is, is authentic community. Uh, authentic community. When you hear authentic community, what do you think about? You think about think about relationships that are real, relationships that are genuine, relationships that uh, that we can that can flourish, that we can enjoy and and be a part of. And I think that's exactly the description that he's given us in verses nine through thirteen here. And Paul's going to kind of go through this list, and he kind of just spouts out some things. He said, "Do this, do this, and this, and these these commands that are there." And it's a list that's real easy to read and even to understand. But man, when we try to apply it, it's some hard stuff here. And it's some things that we need to be aware of on a regular basis if we're going to be able to really, truly, genuinely experience God's best for us in the context of community, in the context of relationships within the body of Christ, uh, but things that are that are so important for us. And one of the things that's, that's important to note about all of these different relationships throughout chapter 12 here that are mentioned is that we can't do it in our own flesh. If we're trying to do this in our own power, if we're trying to do this again, with the, with the methodology and the thinking of the world will never be successful. These are things that only come as we, as we talked about last week, as we surrender ourselves as living sacrifices, as we surrender ourselves to God on an ongoing, continual basis. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to do these things in us so that he can do these things through us. And so as I share these things today, a lot of hard things that we need to apply to our life, please do not hear this as man, I've just got to buck up and do the best I can. And I've got to do this in my own strength and my own power. Because if that's our attitude and if that's our, 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 our plan, we're going to fail miserably. We cannot do this in our own strength. None of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, we can do in our own strength. We are completely dependent upon the word of God being at work in us, being alive in us, and the spirit of God working through us to accomplish these things. So, so first of all, seeing in verses 9 through 13, our relationship with others, our authentic community within the body of Christ, listen to what it says. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality." You know, God's desire and God's plan for us as Christ followers is to is to live together in authentic community, to love one another, to encourage one another, to support one another. And Jesus himself said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love one for another. That's his plan. That's his desire. That's a, that is our way to be a witness to the world is by showing genuine love and authentic community to uh, one another. Jesus on the, the, before he, just before he was arrested and went to the cross in John chapter 17, he, he's praying to the father. He's calling out to the father. And one of the key things that he asked the father is that his followers, that his people, those that he claims as his own, me and you, us, that we would love one another, that we would care for one another, that we would walk in unity together. And, and we, get to, we get to live out today being the answer to the prayer of Jesus, uh, the prayer that he prayed to his father. And so, and so as we see these things in, in verses 9 through 13, we see clearly different ways that we get to live out this authentic community and that we get to be, to be real with one another. He starts off right at the beginning by saying, let love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. Now, this word genuine, it is the the Greek word is anhypocritas. Now, hypocritas is the word for hypocrisy. We we know that word well, right? Hypocrisy in its original in its original setting meant to hide behind a mask. It was that idea in theater where one actor would play multiple characters, and he would do that 
by putting a mask and changing the mask dependent upon the character that he was playing, or he would throw his voice, hide behind that mask. And so everyone there knew that, that the mask they were seeing was not the real person. It was not the real actor, but this was someone playing a part. And, and when you put the an in front of it, that prefix in front of Hippocrates, it says the opposite. And so he's saying here, let your love be the opposite of hypocrisy. Let your love be genuine and real. So many times we don't experience authentic community within the body of Christ because we're just not real with each other. We feel like we have to present an image. We feel like we have to put on a show and we have to look a certain way and act a certain way to be accepted within the body of Christ. And and Paul is saying that if we're going to experience God's best and real, true, genuine, authentic community, then we we can't hide behind. We can't be hypocritical. We can't hide behind the mask. But our love must be real and our love must be genuine. And we must seek to experience relationships that are pure and that are real and genuine. He says out of this, abhor what is evil and hold fast to that which is good. Now, this is this is important for us as individuals, that we hate sin, that we hate evil, and that we cling to that which is good and we do what is right. But I think the context here flows out of this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love, the best definition I've ever heard of love is love is acting in the best interest of another. And you can apply that to every relationship, even to the relationship that our Heavenly Father has for us. He, he, out of his love for us, demanded that he would act in our best interest in sending his son. Jesus loved us enough that he came and acted in what was in our best interest. And so the same is true in our love one for another. And so a love that is real and genuine is going to act in the best interest of others. It's not going to hide behind a mask. It's going to be real. It's going to be pure. But then it also is going to be willing to say when things are evil. And it's going to be willing to celebrate that which is good. It gives the idea, again, in context of community, that we are spurring each other on to good works. When we have relationships that are real and genuine, and when we're not hiding behind masks, then it gives us the opportunity when we see wrongdoing or we see evil being done uh, in the lives of those that we love, we're willing to step in and call those things evil. And we build relationships so that we have the opportunity to, to speak truth. The Bible tells us to speak that truth in love. And that's the idea here is we are removing the mask and we're being real with one another. We are opening ourselves up and allowing others in, in community, others in our in the body of Christ to speak truth into us and to call out sin in our life and also to celebrate the good things in our life. But then it also gives us the opportunity to do the same for them. And as we are able to encourage and spur one another on to good works, it's important that we have these relationships of accountability in our lives. And so in the context of authentic community, that's exactly what he's saying here. Let your love act in the best interest of others. Allow people to speak into your life, but then you be willing and able to speak into others as well. Verse number 10, he goes on, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. This love in, in verse number 10, it's the Greek word phileo. And, and phileo is that is that family type of love, that friendship type of love. And so again, it's viewing the body of Christ and viewing other Christ followers as family, as people that we love and that we genuinely care for. And he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Give preference to others. Um, you know, you, we, we kind of laugh sometimes when we're, you know, talking about husbands and wife, we're trying to pick out a restaurant or where you want to go to eat. Well, I'll, wherever you want to go, wherever you want to go, where you want to go. And we kind of get in these contests of kind of seeing who's going to outdo. And really inside, a lot of times we're just kind of saying, okay, the next time they say me, I'm going to pick my favorite, right? Or we do that. But that's the idea here that we outdo one another. We show preference. We give preference 
to one another. And in the body of Christ, that's the way we ought to be. We ought to be able to put our own wishes and desires to the side in order to benefit and bless and be a blessing to others. Verse number 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The main idea here, I think the main verb here is the serve the Lord part. And it's recognizing that when we serve others within the body of Christ, ultimately, that's exactly what we're doing. We're serving the Lord. We do this service. We do this this ministry and this care to others, but by doing it to others in a tangible way, it is a way for us to express our heart of service before the Lord. And so when we serve others in the body of Christ, ultimately the one that we are serving is the Lord. And so in this idea of serving the Lord, he says, do not be slothful in your zeal. So so he's saying here, don't be lazy, but instead be zealous about that. Be be, be active in that. Be engaging in serving others. Service ought to be something uh, that we don't that we don't dread, but instead we look for opportunities. Well, you know, we don't we don't we're not sitting there and uh, and just man. I, I hope nobody asked me to do something today, or I hope I'm not. You know, I hope there's not a, a, something that comes up that I've got to help somebody there. But instead, we're looking for those opportunities, and we're zealous in the opportunity to serve others, and ultimately in serving others to serve the Lord. And then he says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. That fervent, and again, that's a, those are the opposites there. Don't be lazy and slothful, but instead be fervent in spirit. The word fervent here, it gives the idea of water coming to a boil. Kind of that, you, you, you watch a pot of water. Of course, we know that a washed pot of water never comes to boil. But if you were to watch that pot of water, you'll see bubbles start happening, start forming. It starts off slow and it gets stronger and it's stronger and stronger. And before I know it, man, that, that water's going everywhere. And if you don't cover it, it's just going to come out of the, out of the pot. That's the idea here. He says, instead of being lazy in your, in your desire to serve others and ultimately serve the Lord, instead, instead be fervent in that. Be energized in that. Be, be, excited about that, be encouraged in that. And so, and so having that mindset of looking for opportunities to serve others, looking for opportunities to serve others, again, knowing that when we serve others, ultimately we are serving the Lord. So, so let our love be genuine and real, not, not with hypocrisy, show that affection and care for one another, give preference to one another. Uh, don't be lazy, but instead be fervent in your service to one another, ultimately to the Lord. Then verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. I think the key idea and the key thought here is that be patient in tribulation. The reality is within the body of Christ and within the context of community, we're going to have hard times. We're going to face struggles. We're going to face difficulties. There are going to be challenges in the relationship, but there are going to be challenges together in the world. And there's times that we as the body of Christ just got to kind of lock arms and and persevere through tribulation, persevere through hard times. And so he gives us the the way to do that, the way to be patient and, and to persevere through tribulation and through struggles. It's having the right perspective, having that right biblical perspective. That's what James chapter one, when James chapter one, when, when, when James is speaking of trials and tribulations and the, the struggles that we face in this life. And he says, you know, he doesn't say if you face trials, he says, when you face trials, uh, when you face the difficulties, when you face the tribulations, he says in those things, he, he God gives us resources. He says to, for us to pray, for us to recognize, for us to ask for wisdom. And wisdom is looking at life from God's perspective, from God's viewpoint. And that's exactly what it takes here in verse number 12, to be patient in that tribulation. We've got to have the right viewpoint, the right perspective. And he gives us two ways to do that. First of all, he says to rejoice in hope, to rejoice in hope. 
This is a, that, that understanding and that recognition that the hope that we have in Christ because of our relationship, that's what holds us together as Christ followers. That's what gives us that authentic community. What we have different is that we have a hope, even in the midst of a wicked, crazy world, in the midst of trials and tribulations, we have hope to cling to. We have a hope that is the anchor for our soul. And, and that hope is that this world is not our home. You take the darkest trial, the darkest situation, the trial that you're going through, That's this is the worst it's ever going to be for us. For those who are in Christ, the trials of this life are the worst that we will ever face. When we when this life ends, we've got an eternal hope. We've got an eternal future. We have glory to look forward to. And, and it is never going to be any worse for us who are Christ followers than it is right now. So come together and lock arms together and let's rejoice in this hope that we have. Again, Hebrews says that we have a hope that is the anchor for our soul. May it keep us grounded and keep our perspective. And we're going through trials. May we see these things as temporary. May we see these things as temporal. And even if those trials lead to us losing our life here on this earth, Man, that just opens the door for an eternity together with our Savior. So the, the one tool and resource that we have to be patient in tribulation is to rejoice in hope, but then also to be constant in prayer, to be constant in prayer. And the idea of constant there is a, it's a devotion, be devoted to prayer. And again, in the context of community, we get to rejoice together in the hope that we have in Christ. But man, we must come together and be devoted to prayer together. Uh, that's That's just another one of the great things that I love about being a part of the community at Lifeline. Uh, we believe in prayer and we have many opportunities to, to pray together. And when we pray together, we encourage one another and we build each other up. And in the context of community, whoever you're doing life with and serving with in your local church, in, your, in your, the body of believers around you, when, you, when you're facing trials, when you're facing tribulations, may we together be able to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ, but we also, may we walk in the confidence that we have when we are devoted to prayer. May we pray for one another. May we encourage one another in prayer. May we remind one another in prayer and be constant, be devoted to a life of prayer. And then he closes out this section, verse number 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This again has that idea of meeting the needs of those who we love. He says they're contribute to the needs of the saints. That's literally speaking of financial resources, being willing to share your financial resources, being willing to take what God has given you and sharing that with others in Christ, sharing that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we hear of a need, being willing to step in and out of the abundance of what God has done for us, being willing to give up ourselves. We see this happening over and over again throughout the New Testament. We see the body of Christ coming together and and, and sharing their resources to encourage one another. And even uh, Paul writes to, to some of the churches that, that had very little, but yet they were faithful to give to the needs of those uh, who are in, in going through hard times and difficulties. And so may we have be, have the willingness and be willing to, to share out of the abundance of what God has done for us and then seek to show hospitality. Uh, hospitality here, this idea of, of, again, opening up our hearts, opening up our homes and being willing to give for others. In biblical times, you didn't have a lot of modern hotels and those kind of things. We, we of course, we're going to go somewhere, go to go to a new city or go to a place that we're visiting. There are hotels everywhere and of all different, you know, monetary values and those kind of things. And it's easy for us to find. But in biblical times, what they would do is they would find other believers in a city and they would say, hey, we're, we're coming to this town for a while. And, and believers would open up their homes, sometimes even, even strangers from the world's perspective, but recognizing that they were part of the body of Christ. 
And so this idea of hospitality is one of being willing to open up our homes, open up our hearts and receive others and to be willing to, to care and support. So we see in verses nine through 13, the importance of experiencing God's best. We experience this in relationship with the body of Christ, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And may we experience that authentic, real community by loving without hypocrisy and, 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 and being willing to speak truth into each other's lives by loving with that, that family love and recognizing uh, the, the, the need to give preference to one another by serving one another and ultimately serving the Lord, not being lazy, but instead being fervent by working our way, being patient and carrying through uh, through tribulation, by focusing on that hope and being diligent in our prayer, and then by serving one another, opening our hearts, opening up our homes, and, and, and being a blessing to others. He kind of turns the, the tone here. And now in verses 14 through 21, he's going to speak about our relationship with those who have done us wrong. Our relationships sometimes with those that we would call our enemy, those who maybe have hurt us. It could be those who are outside of the body of Christ, those who are who are who would seek uh, evil and harm for those who follow Christ, those who who live in a whole different lifestyle. But you know, it could even be some within the body of Christ that maybe have been misguided and walked in sin and have hurt us and caused us struggle. And so, in that context, let's read verses fourteen through twenty-one, and then we'll kind of come back and talk through this a little bit. Paul says, "Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them." Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I want you to stop for just a moment. I want you to think in your mind about someone that hurt you. I know that's not pleasant. That's not what we want to do first thing on a Monday morning, right? We try to put those things out of our mind. But stop just for a moment. Imagine that person, that person, or that group of people, or you know, maybe it was uh, maybe it was a uh, someone who, who who treated you unfairly. Maybe it was someone who gossiped about you, or someone who lied to you, or or someone who, who even abused you. Maybe it was someone who who you should have been able to trust, but they walked out on you. Maybe it was someone who broke your trust. Maybe even a, a, a parent or a, or a friend or a pastor or a business partner, somebody in your life that, that, you, that you looked to and that you trusted that, that broke that trust. As we think about those who have, who have done us harm, it's important that we seek to, to, to experience a relationship with that individual that is different from that of the world. Now, there may be times where we may not be able to fully mend and heal a relationship where we've been hurt. But what I want us to, what I think Paul is focusing on here is not necessarily that person coming to us and engaging with us, but it's what is our response? What is our understanding? What is our perspective? What, is it, what does it look like within us when we think about that person who has harmed us? What are the thoughts that bubble up in our hearts and in our mind when we think about the abuse that we have suffered and the things that we have gone through? Jesus himself in, in Matthew uh, chapter five, beginning in verse number 43, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy or you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect or must be complete as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus is saying, the same thing that I think Paul is expressing here, is that we as Christ followers, we should not live like the world. We should not follow the thinking and the philosophy of the world. I know these things are difficult. I know these things are hard, but God wants us to experience freedom. God wants us to be uh, to, to be released from the bondage uh, of unforgiveness and from carrying the weight of seeking to repay and seeking to, to do harm to those who have harmed us. And that's the mindset that he gives when he, when he speaks of this. And first of all, in verse number 14, he says to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Again, he's, we, have, we have two opportunities here. When we think of that person that has harmed us or we face that, that struggle and that difficulty, that, 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 that shameful thing, that wicked thing that has been done to us, we can respond in one of two ways. We can curse them. We can wish them misfortune. We can wish them the, the judgment of God upon them, or we can bless them, wish them well, pray that God's favor would be upon them. In our flesh, we want that, that cursing, right? We want, we want them to experience the judgment of God. But God is saying, don't walk that way. Instead, bless them. Pray for God's blessing in their life. And ultimately, the only way that we can do this, and the word that just immediately comes to my mind when I read verse 14, is the word forgiveness. It's the word forgiveness. We've got to experience forgiveness. We must forgive those who have hurt us and those who have harmed us. You said, but Chris, you don't know what they did, and you don't know how bad it hurt. You're right. I don't. I don't. I know how bad I've been hurt, and I know situations in my own life that I have faced, but yet we have this command to bless and not curse, to forgive, to not hold on to unforgiveness. Forgiveness is me giving up my right to hurt you when you have hurt me. Again, from a flesh perspective, when you hurt me, I've got every right to come back at you. I've got every right to hurt you back, and it's a, it's a give and take relationship, Right? But forgiveness says, I am willing to give up my right to hurt you, even when you have hurt me. And the thing that we learn about forgiveness is forgiveness is not for that person that has hurt you. We oftentimes think, well, I can't forgive them because that lets them off the hook. The reality is they are going about their life and it's not bothering them a bit that you haven't forgiven them. Forgiveness is not about the other person, the offender. Forgiveness is about me. Forgiveness is about what, what I am willing to, someone has wisely said, I think, forgiveness is drinking poison, but it, but hoping the other person's going to die. Drinking poison, but expecting the other person to die from it. Forget, unforgiveness hurts no one except yourself. When we hold on to that bitterness and we hold on to that unforgiveness, we may think we're hurting them, but in reality, we are hurting our own selves. And so God is saying, I want you to experience freedom. I want you to walk in freedom. So yield your right to hurt them and instead. Surrender that and trust me with that. Walk in forgiveness. As we go through this process of forgiveness, when we one of the ways that we know that we're able to forgive is by verse number 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I wonder that that person that was in your mind that I asked you to think about earlier, when you hear about things happening in their life, when you hear something good that happened in your life, in their life, do you rejoice about that 
Or do you say, man, that's just not fair. I don't, I don't, I don't, can't believe that happened. When you hear something bad in their life, do you rejoice with the bad and say, there you go. Now you're getting your own. God's got you now. That, that will, the way that we respond when we hear good news and bad news will really show us, reveal to us where our heart is in this. And when we have walked, when we are walking in forgiveness and forgiveness is a process, please know I'm not taking lightly the hurt and the pain. It's a process that we get to that point of forgiveness. But when we know that we are walking in forgiveness, then we are able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I want to be able to walk in the freedom of forgiveness to where that when I hear of the struggles of those who have hurt me, that I don't rejoice in their struggles and I don't, and I don't get mad when, when in their blessing, but I can weep with them and I can rejoice with them. And that's when we see that supernatural response, that response that we can't generate in and of ourselves, but when we allow God to do that work of forgiveness in us. Go on to verse number 17 through 19, and he speaks here, or excuse me, verse 16, we're verse 16 here. He speaks of forgiveness and then being able to identify with them and then of walking in the spirit of humility. Verse number, verse number 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is that idea of, again, walking uh, in, in a spirit of humility not feeling superior. Sometimes when we look at those who have hurt us, we we kind of forget about the times that we have hurt others. And we begin to walk in this spirit of superiority and thinking that that we are somehow better than them. But what Paul is saying that when we are walking in the in the in the in the experiencing God's best in our life, then we're going to walk in forgiveness. We're going to be able to identify with those who have hurt us. And then we're going to walk in a spirit of humility. We're not going to think of ourselves better. Man, I, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm glad I don't have that struggle. No, that, that's not the mind and heart of Christ. But instead, it's one that, it, that is not wise in our own sight, that is, that, it, that, it, that is not haughty, but instead associates with the lowly. And that gives us the opportunity to walk in harmony. Again, with those who have hurt us, we may not be able to see the full fulfillment of a restored relationship, but yet still our, we can control our response. And our response must be one of humility. You go on to see in verses 17 through 19, this idea of, of not seeking out revenge. Again, the world says, get revenge. Or the world says, you do what you can to hurt that person who has hurt you. But God's way is different. Repay no one evil for evil. We don't have the right to do evil to others just because they've done evil to us. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, again, you can't control their response. You can't control how they respond. But in everything in your power, live peaceably with all. Do everything in your power to walk in peace, to walk in that in, 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 as, as right as you can and do what is, what is right and just. And then he says, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This, this, in order for this to be a reality, we have to trust the sovereignty of God. We have to trust that God knows what is best in our life. And God can even use that pain and that struggle to bring about great things in our heart and in our life. And so we need to leave the results to God. Literally what he is saying here when he says, never avenge yourself, he is saying, and leave it to the wrath of God. He is saying, leave room for God to work. Get out of the way of God. How many times do we try to play God in people's lives? Well, if I could just get them to understand how bad they hurt me, or if I could just get them to understand how wrong it is that what they have done, that's not our place. That's not our role. That's the role of God himself. 
And God has said that he will make all things right. He is a just God and we must be willing to trust him. You're like, well, I don't see him working. It's, it's not happening fast enough. I want them to experience hurt and pain. God's not, God's not standing up for me. We've got to come to a place where we trust God, that we trust these things to him. We trust that he is just. We trust that he will accomplish and he will do what is right and what is pure and what is just. So we can't play God, but instead we've got to trust them to him. It's this idea for the Christ follower, for those of us who are God's people, personal retaliation is never an option. Let me say that again. Personal retaliation is never, ever an option for us. We don't have that option. That is not something that we can do. Here again, another another thing that I've heard about retaliation. Retaliation is like fighting a fire with a gas hose. We think we're trying to stop that fire. We think we're trying to put out that fire and fix things. But in reality, we're doing nothing but pouring gasoline on the situation. And so we've got to get out of the way and we've got to let God work. We can't seek retaliation, but instead we must trust this thing to God. He says, verse 20, to the contrary, instead of seeking retaliation, instead of seeking your own vengeance, instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Man, that's hard, right? That's hard for our flesh. Instead of seeking vengeance, if they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In so doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I remember as a child reading or a teenager sometime in my early life, reading that verse and going, heaping coals of fire on their head. That's what I want. God, bring down the fire on that person who has hurt me. God, judge them and pour down, rain down your fire on them. But that's not what Paul's saying. That's exact contrary to what he just told us, right? That's not what the idea here is behind a a ritual that used to take place uh, in in, in ancient cultures where those who were feeling remorse, they were feeling shame, they were feeling guilt, ultimately they were feeling conviction. The practice was that they would take hot coals out of the fire and put them in a bowl and they would walk around the village or the community with those hot coals on the in that bowl on top of their head. And the idea was that this was, again, that they were burning with conviction, that they were burning with shame and with guilt. And so what Paul is saying here is when we feed those who are hungry and we give, give drink to those who are thirsty, even those that, have, those that have hurt us, ultimately, when we surrender to God and trust God and we don't try to seek vengeance and we don't try to seek retaliation, God can use our response to accomplish incredible miracles in the lives of those individuals, incredible miracles in the lives of those people. God can bring about conviction. God can bring about the the guilt and the shame and those things. And God can turn the hearts of those who have caused the damage. I'm reminded of several times in God's word where this happens. There was the time when, with, with David and Saul, when, if you remember the time when, when David found Saul in the, in the, in the cave and, and he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. He instead, uh, he didn't take Saul's life. First Samuel chapter 24, basically we have the story of when David and, and Saul had a conversation and, and David, Saul heard about what David had done. And, and Saul said that because you have done this, uh, Saul said, you have, you have, you have brought, brought shame on me. You have, you have convicted me. I am, I am convicted because you rewarded me good, whereas I have done evil for you. We, we see in the story of, 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 of the apostle Paul, Paul watched the response of Stephen 
We're told that Paul was there when Stephen was stoned and Stephen didn't cry out against his accusers. He didn't seek retaliation. He, he looked to heaven and he, and he, and he, and he, and he, and he allowed God to accomplish what in his life. And Paul watched Stephen's response. And that we, because of that being recorded in scripture, I, I believe that had a part in Paul's, in the softening of Paul's heart for his conversion. Ultimately, we see this portrayed by Jesus, right? As he hung on the cross, what did he cry out? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the soldiers who were looking on, we have record of at least one of those soldiers that, that came to faith that day because of the response of Jesus. May we have the proper response and allow God to do the work in those who have hurt us, those who are in the world around us. Ultimately he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have a, the opportunity today to respond in one way or another. We can try to seek our own vengeance. We can try to fix things ourselves, or we can surrender to the grace of God. We can allow the grace of God to overcome the evil that was done. When we hear of evil, when we experience evil, do we seek to give it right back? Do we allow ourselves to be overcome by that evil that's been done to us, or do we seek to do good? Do we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? Do we allow God to use us to provide a supernatural response to the hurt and the pain that we have experienced? God wants us to experience his best. He has provided everything for our salvation. He is sovereign. He is good. He will never turn his back on us. We have the confidence that we can walk in him and, and nothing will ever overcome his love for us. But as we do that, may we experience his best. May we walk in, in the right relationship with him, a relationship of surrender. May we walk in the right relationship with the world, not letting the world squeeze us into its mold. May we uh, have the right perspective on our own life and the grace of God at work in us. But then, as we've seen today, may we, may we love the body of Christ. May we come together and support and encourage one another. But then also, may we properly respond to the evil and the mistreatment that is, that is applied in our lives. God will use us. God will do great things in us. God will bless our lives explicitly as we surrender to his ways and allow him to do the work that only he can do. Will you join me in prayer as this week we pray for our development team at Lifeline? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and mercy and how you are working our lives. We thank you, God, that you don't just save us and leave us alone, but God, you continue to work in us and develop with us, uh, grow us to the point of maturity and help us become more like Christ. Lord, we lift up today our development team and development efforts at Lifeline. We thank you so much for the people that you have led and laid on their hearts, God, to join us in this ministry through financial gifts and through uh, support of our ministry. And Lord, we thank you for them. We pray your blessings upon them. And Lord, as we come to the end of the year, God, we recognize just the blessings that you have provided for us and the way that you have met every need and you continue to meet every need. Lord, you've allowed us to expand this year like never before. And uh, God, as we approach this final uh, year-end campaign, God, I pray that you would just continue to provide the necessary funds for our ministry. I pray that you would just continue to lay on the hearts of your people, God, the opportunity to be engaged in a part of this work. Lord, I thank you for our team at Lifeline that continues to seek to serve donors well and encourage them and pray with them and, and help them. And I pray that we just would continue to um, 
Lord, just be, be, be joined together, God, in this ministry. I thank you for uh, just the opportunity to be a part of your church, a part of your body, uh, Lord, that comes together, each bringing different gifts and abilities and uh, each answering different opportunities, God, to be a part of this work, this gospel ministry to vulnerable children. So we thank you for your blessings. We pray that you'd continue to guide us, direct us, help us to be good stewards, and we'll give you praise. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.